WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to City Talk. Those of you who who are talk aficionados and remember way, way back when WRKO first went talk, certainly I hope know the name Deborah Roby. And uh, Deb has consented to join us and talk about her career at RKO and other great moments in broadcast history that she was involved in. And Deb, I, I'll tell you, when I first heard your name from Peter, your husband, I was thrilled and about the possibility of being able to do an interview because I certainly remembered oh. your name. Well, thank you. Yes, we are a real broadcast family, broadcasting family, um, Boston broadcasting family, to be to be very specific. It's nice to be with you. Well, it's it's a thrill for me to to be with you. Now, I know you're from Providence, but to to uh, make a long story longer, how did you get from Providence to WRKO? <laughs> did you did um, someone encourage right. you to do journalism or did you get it on your own or what? I think I got it on my own. I loved writing. Um, You know, I think I learned very early on that if somebody was going to pay me to write and to communicate, I would be in a very happy place and and a lane that I would want to skate in for a very long time. Um, And that was true. I found that to be true um, as an undergrad in college, studying journalism and working for the college radio station and college newspaper. And then after college, um, lucking out and finding a a great radio job at the all news radio station owned at the time by the Providence Journal, a CBS radio affiliate. And it was working there where I really learned how to cover a community. I worked with some terrific broadcasters who all these decades later, many of whom are still on the air in Rhode Island. Uh, believe it or not. And I think that's a real testament to the training ground that our radio station was at the time. Um, The Providence Journal really invested in a large staff of radio people, on-air staff, I mean. And um, we all covered the state and the city of Providence and surrounding communities uh, all those years. And then my migration to Boston was very um, coincidental and lucky because I had a news director in Boston who lived on the South shore of Boston and drove home every night and listened to other stations to hear what the competition was doing. Because back in those days, radio stations had news staffs and they were really serving their communities. And my news director or my future news director heard me on the air um, in Providence and invited me up to interview for a job at uh, WRK. Was this Ed Walsh? Yes. He became a real great, another terrific mentor of mine. This was Ed Walsh, who um, happened to live in Duxbury at the time and could hear those Providence stations like WEAN at the time. And so that was probably 1981, 1982. And that's when I began commuting from Providence to Boston. For I did that probably for the first year or two, Um, (laughs) just in case it didn't work out. But... uh, (laughs) And that's really just me being silly. I mean, I I also, um, you know, I was pretty young. I was right out of college, so probably 23, 24. And it was, again, a terrific training ground. I have worked with some amazing people 
who remain really close friends to this day because you know Kenny the, you know the joke about radio there are probably only about 100 people who work in in broadcasting and radio and spe specifically and we all know each other yep but back that back then and I think you can attest to this most good stations like WRKO which had a booming 50,000 watt signal and could be heard all over greater Boston and certainly southern New England you know, we were competing. We were we were serious about the news, about serving the community, and so were all the other Boston stations. So that competition made us better. I am convinced of that. And I I was there for a good seventeen years, eventually wow. becoming the first female news director at WRKO. But that was much later. So oh no, we're gonna we're gonna get into all that. <laughs> but but tell me about some of the experiences and, and memories you have of working in. In Providence, was it EAN that you worked at? It was WEAN 790 on the AM dial and Providence Journal employer. So a terrific employer. And, uh, you know, they supported the format. They supported the news that we were doing every day. It was not talk. It was all news. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of content. You know, we were pre-internet to me anyway, when I look back, we were creating, we were content creators, right? And, but we weren't making it up. <laughs> we were following basic journalism rules that I think a lot of the public today, I worry, has forgotten about, about the tenets of journalism that, that make the news what it is. You know, we're not just ripping and reading. We were confirming. We were using one and two sources to report the news. Uh, we were interviewing newsmakers on a regular basis. One of my best memories as a new reporter was that I got to host, um, ask the governor every month. The governor of the state would come into the studios and we would open up the lines and take questions and ask him tough questions and try to hold his feet to the fire. And, um, you know, that was content creation before before the Internet. Right. <laughs> it's a great yep, way to think, about, think of it anyway. Now, you know, you talk to guys like a Gary LaPierre and, and he can tell you about mm -hmm. about interviewing President Clinton or or even back further than that. Did you have yeah. any thrills like that in Rhode Island? We we had certainly we had um, we used to love the fact that our senators called in, you know, our former senator John Chafee would call into the newsroom and we would do lots of telephone interviews. We called them beepers back then. Um, and we would we would we were in touch with our elected officials. Um, even it, back in the day, I think Claiborne Pell was still um, very active and he was an older senator, but he was, you know, he was in touch with us and we would put him on the radio. Um, and this was the only way that many of our elected officials could communicate with their constituents. So, you know, they used us and we certainly used them to make news. All right. um, what else do I remember about those days? Oh, my gosh. Just, you know, so Cal Rhode Island is such a Catholic state, very much like Greater Boston. So the Archdiocese of Providence uh, was certainly always in the news. We we had a um, we had a bishop, Jeleno, who was very um, active and a great communicator. So he was on the radio a lot, creating content, making news um, with all of us. And uh, it, it was a great, it was a really great training ground, you know, so that when I was, when I moved to Boston and started covering Cardinal Madero's, for example, in um, the early days of um, the Boston Archdiocese, 
early days for me, it was the 80s. Um, you know, there was a lot to cover. And there, you know, we didn't have any qualms about making sure we had a reporter over at the archdiocese whenever there was news, uh, news was being made, because we knew that the that Cardinal Medeiros would speak to us. Um, and, but, you know, so did everybody else. So, you know, you'd go out to a story and you'd meet everybody from BZ and EEI and HDH. I mean, all of the commercial stations on the AM dial and the FM dial. I don't want to forget the FM news staffs that were out there competing for with us, against us, uh, for audience and to, to make sure their listeners were informed. Uh, you, you can tell by the way that I talk about it that... I lament the fact that these kinds of days and services, these kinds of this kind of community service that radio used to provide is hard to find these days. Yeah, it's it's not the same. I've I've had people tell me, I mean, I was I was in the business itself for 20 years and I've mm -hmm. had many people tell me you're better off not being in it because it's just not the same anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of sad. Um, it's very sad. Yeah. But but drop some names. Tell me some of the people that you were. I mean, Ed Walsh, besides having a great voice and <laughs> yeah. who eventually worked at BC Radio for a while and I think replaced Gary LaPierre. Um, drop Ed some has names the distinction. I will tell you about Ed's career because I'm still very much in touch with him. He has the distinction of having left Boston and um, becoming a news director in New York City. He managed WOR. Uh, for many years. He also was a news director, pretty successful one, I would say, in uh, the Phoenix, Arizona market, um, and then came back to New York. He has worked as an anchor on WCBS radio and uh, on C the CBS radio network as well. And then he holds the distinction, you are absolutely right, of replacing Gary LaPierre on BZ Morning Drive when Gary retired. So and that was a great, um, a great a uh, cap, a uh, feather in his cap, I would say, because he was, yep. he had yep. competed against Gary for so many years. Now, t tell me about the new staff at RKO. Who else was there? Probably what my favorite person, probably my favorite person who has since passed on, who was such a mentor to so many of us, um, you know, on the younger side, is um, John John Masters. Oh, who, God. Uh, was our statehouse reporter and our evening news anchor and had the greatest, most booming voice um, and just a great love for radio. You know, that's what we all had in common. We all had a great love and respect for what we were doing every day. Yep. I remember the and name John Masters very well, as yeah. a matter of fact. Yeah, he was he terrific. Was terrific. And he retired. I, he retired in the early 90s, but he'd been on the radio probably 40 years. Yeah. Wow. Long time, long time. That's that's great. That's great to know. Now, you were in on history. WRKO was a music station. When I it came was. to Boston, it had the Bill Drake format that you, I wish, would explain to some of our listeners. But tell <laughs> us about that and what it was like when it became the talk station and, and right. the last song played that you and I talked about earlier. Yes, I, I wish I could explain the Drake format, but suffice it to say, you know, it was top 40 music and it was um, super popular and the big 68 
was uh, was so was something that people who grew up in greater Boston were very fond of, particularly in the 60s and the 70s. But I was hired along with a group of other new staff people in 1981 because the plan was to flip the format, to switch to all talk and to become a successful uh, preeminent talk radio station with a 50,000 watts. So it was a risk that management was taking, but I think there was a great deal of confidence based on the air staff that they brought on that this was going to that this was going to be a success in Boston. And you know, remember, this was before any kind of talk radio that we know of now or we think of now in a na on a national level. So this was going to be really local talk radio. And so when I was brought on, the plans were already in the works to stop playing music. And what I remember is that, yes, we were all on, on staff and getting trained and getting ready uh, to start producing a lot more local news in between the talk shows. Um, and our assistant program director was a DJ. Um, and, you know, he, he, like a lot of people, a lot of the air staff were making the transition to our talk format. And he was disc jockeying for one of, in one, on one of the last shifts. And that day that we played the last song, he chose Don McLean's American Pie uh, with the lyric, The Day the Music Died, as the last song that was played in the music format on RKO. So it, it kind of became urban legend. Uh, the story's been told so many times. I wish we had a recording of it. We might. It might exist somewhere on the Internet. I don't know. Um, but maybe somebody listening will know. Interesting. It's a great story. And, and <laughs> I remember I remember names, obviously, Gene Burns and Jerry Williams. Yes. They used to call the used to call them the Dean and Jean. The Dean and Jean. Jean was um, was noon to two, and Jerry the Dean was two to six every night, yep. followed by our sports show, um, our sports talk show with Glenn Ordway and Guy Manella and just a host of other great people who cut their teeth and learned how to be talk show hosts um, on that station or on that show. But yes, there was no, um, there was no comparison when it came to Gene and Jerry, they were both at the top of their games. They were both so professional, um, and but they but very different men and brought something unique to each of their programs and their audiences. I think absolutely loved and appreciated both of them, particularly Gene's audience. He had a very loyal audience of people. Gene, Jerry too, but Gene's audience just worshipped him. I'll tell you a Jerry Williams story, which is so funny. I remember one night I was listening to Jerry at night and he did a big, huge monologue about something. I don't remember what the subject was. The phones started ringing and he said to the producer, don't don't screen the calls. Just punch up somebody. And I guarantee you their first question will have nothing to do with what we just spent half an hour on. That sounds like Jerry. Yeah. So he did it. The, the producer punched up the call and, and the and the caller said to Jerry, hey, Jerry, have you ever been on community auditions? Oh, sure and enough. Jerry just lost it. Yep, <laughs> never, that was Jerry. Never, never forget that story. The thing about Gene, Gene had a great deal of respect for his audience. And I think that in, in turn, you know, he got a lot of that back. 
what I loved about Jerry was what a showman he was. You know, he was a very serious person off air. Um, and, you know, he he didn't he didn't mingle with everybody on the staff. He just kind of kept his head down and worked. He worked hard. The prep and the planning that he put into that show, it was remarkable. He really took it seriously. And as a result, there was a lot of meat on the bone of his programs every single day. And, you know, I had the pleasure of just being there on the other side of the glass in our news department, in our newsroom and news studio. But, you know, you, you didn't you didn't ever think that Jerry was phoning it in. He, he wasn't. He he really worked hard and it showed. I mean, it showed in the ratings, um, his producers, he expected so much from them and they delivered. So he had very yep. high standards. Jerry for a week at WBZ when we celebrated their 50th anniversary. Mm. And we, we did a whole week of old time radio people. And in the beginning, I was scared stiff because I used to listen to Jerry on the air. And I was terrified <laughs> with Jerry Williams. I could find anybody nicer in the world to work with than with, than with Jerry. I really enjoyed that week. It yeah, was a he, great one of the weeks of my life. I'm not surprised. Yeah, he, he really, so, his game, he kept his game high, his standard high. And as a result, I think, I like to think that all of everyone around him did the same. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that at the same time that Gene and Jerry were brought on for this brand new talk format, we had David Brudnoy on at night from eight to midnight. Um, and I had the, also had the pleasure of anchoring the newscast during David Brudnoy's incredible evening shows that were so entertaining. I mean, you know, this was before he was back at BZ, you know, in yep. the 90s and the, and the early aughts. He was on RKO and he was tremendous. I learned so much from Bruds um, and just loved him dearly. What a wonderful human being. Now, I have to ask you this. Do you listen to talk anymore? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Yes. Do you really? Um, yes, because I have so many friends in the business still. Um, my dear, dear friend, Mary Blake, is the nighttime news anchor at GBH. And so what I love about public radio now in Boston is there are lots of choices, right? And when GBH decided to do more form, more talk um, with Jim and Marjorie, uh, what, in about, about 10 years ago now, I think they're about to have their yep. 10th anniversary, um, you know, it's sort of, I consider that real market disruption because BUR sort of had a monopoly, right? Yeah. Uh, with its with its uh, NPR shows. So now uh, I think greater Boston audiences are so lucky because we have two, two stations to choose from. So yes, I listen to Jim and Marjorie religiously. Sometimes if I miss their show, I listen to the podcast. Um, and, you know, that's another thing that's really changed in the business, right? So if you love an NPR show, if you're a big fan of a, a radio show like this one, it's in podcast form now. So you can... Um, you know, it's appointment listening on your schedule. So I'm, I admit to doing that. I'll do it occasionally with, um, with Boston Public Radio, particularly if they're going to interview the mayor or the governor. And I really want to hear what, um, how the conversation went. I'll go right to the podcast. So did I hope, you, I hope audiences do that for, for their sake. Did you love being a news director? Yes, I did, because we had a staff of something like a dozen part-time and, and full-time people, and wow. um, there was always something to cover. It, it was never dull, 
And then our company bought WHDH and we had two competing AM radio stations with two separate news staffs um, working together for the first time. So that was sort of an interesting time. That was the early 90s during the duopoly phase of radio when a lot of stations started to started to get bought up. And here we are, what, 20, 25 years later, and we have uh, all of these multi-ownership radio stations now. Now, I don't know about you, Ken, but I, I kind of can't keep track of who owns which station on the dial. I have a oh, tough no. time I, keeping I, track I, I of can't. ownership. I can't. I used to try, but now I just, I, I mean, there's so much other things or so much other stuff going on right. like with sports and, and everything else. I, I used to be a devotee of, of, of talk radio all the time. I used to listen to Jerry Sobel. I listened to Dick Syatt. Right, to Harry, Dr. Harry Sobel, our, our resident psychologist. Yep. He was on in the mornings pre, uh, before Gene Burns in our early incarnation. And he was wonderful um, and, you know, had a great following. You know, that was really appointment radio as well. And don't forget Dick Syatt, who had a great, funny, comedic midday show and um on every saturday would do the very popular show the love line uh i think that's what it was called i hope i hope i have that right something like uh, that yeah yeah I was, and he would I you know just... he was responsible for for all kinds of successful marriages and it was you know it was a great it was a great way to utilize the medium um back before there were smartphone apps you know for people yeah, to yeah. Meet. yeah. <laughs> I, I used to listen to late night radio a lot. When I was in college, Larry Glick was the hottest thing in the world. Yes, yes. And and so many of the people that we're mentioning, I think, you know, all kind of learned their trade or their skills by listening to somebody like Glick, who was one of a kind. Yep. And I'm sure people learned a lot from from listening to you. Um <laughs> Does, does the name Roger Allen mean anything to you? Yes. So Roger was our um, production program director for a time when we first started. So it was Ed Walsh as news director and Roger as our PD. Um, so he really helped in immensely in establishing our talk radio format. And then, of course, you know, we went on to have some incredible PDs through the years, probably the most the man who had the biggest of impact and effect on how the radio station sounded would be former disc jockey Melvin X Miller, but known to me as just Mel Miller. Yep. Who was so knowledgeable and so clear in what he expected. Sometimes the best managers, I think in broadcasting, and I tell my daughter this now because she's been working in broadcasting, the best managers are the ones who just spell it out, you know, and tell you what is expected of you and what they want the radio station to sound like, um, and how they want the audience to be served. Um, so that's sort of Mel Miller's legacy, in my view. I loved working for him because he was always very clear about what he expected of all of us. Um, and he really created a very cohesive team of people. Um, and then he was succeeded after his retirement by my great friend and former Jerry Williams longtime producer, Paula O'Connor. Um, she went on to program other stations like uh, WTKK, uh, which was um, the Boston Markets, I think, very first attempt to have an FM talk station prior to GBH, of course, and not BUR. And um, Paula, I think, gets the credit. She found um, she had already been working with Jim Browdy, 
who had filled in for Jerry Williams on occasion. He was sort of a budding talk show host. And she paired him with Jim with Marjorie. So Egan and Browdy wouldn't exist if it were not for Paula O'Connor. It's, you know, it's the great PDs who put these teams together who I don't think get enough credit. I believe Paula deserves that credit. And by the way, first female program director um, in Boston. And it so, seems so funny to say that now because that was the 90s. You know, now there are plenty of female PDs and GMs, which is great. Yeah, back when back when you started at WRKO, women didn't have that much of an impact no. on broadcasting, did they? They did not. Um, there were a few terrific women that I tried to emulate, but no, there were very few managers. Um, you know, I love Diane Stern. She's become a great friend. Uh, I admire her greatly even today. Uh, but, you know, she was one of the few people on radio back in those days when she was on EEI. There was just, she was, she was the sort of the gold standard in my opinion. And there are plenty of other people. Deb Lawler, who didn't yep. want to drive on with Gary for many years. Fantastic. Um, so, you know, these were, these were, but these were unique people because there weren't, there were not a lot of women on air. You know, now there are plenty of women, not only on air, you know, doing radio shows and hosting them and doing news, but that was not the case 25, 30 years ago. It really was not. And certainly not in the, in the management era either. Um, you know, for example, right now, all the Beasley group, I know the Beasley radio group is run by a woman. GBH has a new general manager who is a woman. Uh, so it's, it's really nice for me to see that after, you know, getting into this business pretty much surrounded by men. <laughs> I, at, <laughs> at least at RKO when I first started, I think I was one of the only women on staff. And then, you know, we had, we added more <laughs> as the years went on. Um, and, you know, my great friends over at WROR, which was our sister FM station, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I mentioned her already, Mary Blake, who is still after 30 years on the air in Boston. She's the nighttime news anchor at GBH. But we worked together when she was on ROR, a terrific anchor um, on the Joe and Andy morning program, along with our other great friend, Susan Nardone. Um, you know, so oh, these cool. two ladies, these are great great uh broadcasters who have remained very close friends that's good susan Nardone. man i haven't heard that name in i can't tell you how long i remember Super talented. Her, but yeah Super I, talented. I, great writer great broadcaster um susan went on to become a public school teacher and she's writing a novel right now so i can tell you that you know you asked me at the beginning well, how do you get started in this business you have to have a love for communicating and a love for writing. I mean, that's really what helps you to excel, I believe. Um, you know, and Susan would be a great example of that. Nobody could write the way she could when we worked together in broadcasting. She could tell you a great story in about 45 seconds. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I knew, I knew Diane. Well, I still know Diane. I haven't talked to Deb Lawler in a long time. Um, yeah. She, of course, was not handled well by iHeartRadio, um, which I feel terrible about. And that's she's a great talent. Deb? Oh, absolutely. What I love about Deb is her consistency. You know, she no matter what she was doing, her approach was always so consistent and professional. Um, and and really in at the end of the day, that's what makes you, I believe, with your audience trustworthy and reliable. You know, those are important things even today, particularly today, let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, it's it's a sad day because I'm not seeing 
new people coming up and new broadcasters having an opportunity to have a great training ground anymore um, because air staffs have shrunk. It's really yep. unfortunate. Yeah, air staffs have shrunk. Uh, mm -hmm. Multimedia people own six, seven radio stations at, right. the, at the same time. Um, it's entirely different. Now, when you left RKO, did, did BUR come after you? About five years later, I hadn't been on the air in five years. <laughs> they had an opening. They needed a temporary host for for a little program, <laughs> a little magazine regional program at the time. This was the late 90s um, called Here and Now. And I was happy to step in and co-host that show for a couple of years while they looked for a permanent host. And that permanent host became Robin Young, who had been hosting a morning drive uh radio show on WBOS. Um, so, and Robin really wanted to return to her roots as a host and a, a news person. She had, you know, such a great um, number of years of experience. She was perfect. And so there you go. That's the story. So I, my distinction is that I co-hosted the, the show before it, before Robin did. And most importantly, when it was really a regional show and it was on um, public radio stations throughout New England first, the six New England states. And it was only after, I I'm going to say maybe five or six years after um, Here and Now began that WBUR and NPR decided to make it a national program. So, and to this day, now it's a two-hour show in middays all across the country. Now, I've heard people tell me that, you know, when you go from regular broadcasting to <laughs> national public radio, your delivery changes. It's more relaxed. It's yes. it's, it's a slower um, uh, atmosphere. Did you find that? And did I you did. find it hard to get used to? Yes, I did. It was all a great learning process. And the nice thing about the people at BUR who've become great friends is that, you know, they took the time to sit with me, to critique, to um, to know that I was open for uh, open for uh, to um, to have notes, if you will, you know, to use the um, to use the Broadway stage version or the dance. My, my daughter was a dancer and they always gave them notes after a performance. Absolutely. Um, I was. I was coming out of commercial radio. So of course I applied the, the rat-a-tat-tat faster uh, news anchoring experience that I had. I had so much of it, right? Um, I think what I've often said to people is um, because then I, then I did some voiceover work as well, um, particularly when I was home with um, our little girl at the time, I would do a lot of um, uh, recording at home on my computer for clients. And I was told- yep. Well, how do you, I was asked, well, how, you know, how do you get to do what you do? And I, I always said, Ken, and maybe you agree with this. It isn't necessarily that you have a particularly wonderful voice, but what I do have is I've logged so many hours behind a microphone. That is really what um, comes into play. It's that experience that really matters. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I can remember when I first went on the air, how scared I was. And I, I eventually decided, you know, because when I first went on the air, it was, my God, 38 states are hearing me breathe on the air. <laughs> you know, oh, it was terrible. Right. And I eventually got to the point where I said, you know what? The best way to do this is if I'm talking to a caller 
is just me and them and nobody else. Exactly. And, and so... Uh, and so to answer your question, yes, was there an adjustment for me on public radio? Absolutely. But I relied on all of those many, many hours that I had logged behind a mic. And uh, I think I succeeded um, by just, you know, making a few tweaks and slowing down my pace. And I loved it. It was a great experience. I've actually worked at BUR twice since those days. Because ah. I came back again about seven years ago to, um, to fill in as a news anchor and was thrilled to do it happy to do it and uh you know it's like riding a bike right <laughs> if, oh absolutely you never yeah you never lose it you never lose it if you go back again though let me know because i want to listen oh thanks i now, don't know what? i think at this time at this point i'm kind of retired i'm much more interested both peter and me my former news director husband and his former news director wife we're happy following the journalism career of our 26 year old she's she's the one that's uh that's um making her yeah. way in the field. And she's yeah, doing talk. exactly as I predicted. I said, once somebody pays you to write and you get you get that paycheck at the end of the week because you're you're creating content and doing it uh, with all the journalistic standards that you've learned, you'll be hooked. And that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I know uh, her, her name is Bridget and she is in New York. But Yeah, Bridget Brown, is... ha ha like her parents, Bridget Brown has a journalism degree and pursued uh, broadcasting right in, in uh, New York City, a great place to be because it's all about oh. proximity, very lucky kid. And right out of college, she worked for MSNBC uh, in their primetime hours uh, where they were, she worked for the booking department where they booked guests for all the primetime shows. She worked on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. She worked on The 11th Hour with Brian Williams. This was great training, once again, from learning from really great broadcasters and experienced people. And then she moved over to um, a, uh, a like a, a kind of a training program at um, CBS News. She worked on the national desk in the newsroom at uh, West 57th and then eventually became a an associate producer for the evening news with Nora O'Donnell, which she just did that for three years. And then in December, moved over to the Associated Press, where she is now a content producer um, on all the digital content that is created by the Associated Press. So we follow this very closely, as you might imagine, and give advice when asked. But mostly we just sit back and enjoy hearing about working in a modern newsroom in, in the digital era, which is very different from when we got our start. Yeah, I can remember people telling me when, when BZ Radio uh, went digital, you know, and they would say, my God, we don't have paper anymore. What are we going to do if a computer breaks down? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, kind of pretty much how it goes these days. Yeah. But tell me, why did you decide to, I'm not, now you're, you're teaching now, but why yes. did you decide to leave BUR and get into that? Oh, probably just because I really enjoyed working in this environment. I work in, in a public library. It's something that is, I, I just can't even compare it to anything else. The, the people are wonderful. They're all about serving the public. They're all about the patrons. And uh, it's just a great, it's a great place, especially if you want to keep learning and doing. And so I teach some of the technology classes that we offer to patrons. So I'm always learning because before <laughs> I get up and instruct, I need to make sure I understand it. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um how many times do you get tired of the phrase breaking news? 
<laughs> we talk about that a lot in our family. Um, yeah, I hate it's, it. It's overused. I hate it. So do we. And uh, we've got to get away from it. We have to. Um, but it's very difficult because everybody has the news in their pockets now. And we have notifications on our smartphones and on our computers and our tablets. And, uh, you know, I just I don't know what the answer is. I, I just hope that anybody listening is going to make sure that when they're consuming news, they're thinking about how they're consuming news. They're they're consuming it in an intelligent way and that they're doing it listening and reading and uh, consuming from a legitimate newsroom. And by that, I mean, think about American newsrooms. Are they actually practicing American journalistic standards? I, I made a reference to that a few minutes ago. I don't think the public really understands how news is gathered and how it is then written up and then presented because so much of it is just you know, all over Twitter, or all over the internet. I will tell you that my daughter works on a team um, where the AP, the Associated Press Twitter feed is part of her responsibility. But I want you to know, and this is really important to remember, nobody is just tweeting arbitrarily. Everything is vetted and everything before it is put out on the internet, it goes through a standards and practices division, uh, right? So things are even checked with legal before they before they're tweeted out. So I think that there's this perception that somebody is just sitting at a keyboard sending out stuff and that is not the case. Not with legitimate news organizations. And I I feel like I'm talking about all of them. I mean, I can only speak to the to the ones that I know are actually following a you know, using a standard, setting a standard and then keeping it, right? It's it's just super and then and and more importantly, when a mistake is made because we're human and errors get made, there is a whole process that one has to go through for correction. Right. So and this is true at The New York Times, at the Associated Press, and I hope at WBZ and WGBH and WBUR, um, when corrections are made, there's a whole there's a whole standard by which they are made. Um, and that's just to me basic because it respects the audience at the end of the day. I, I don't know if it's true now because I don't listen to BZ as much as I used to. But before, yeah. my, my problem was I'd listen to BZ at five or six o'clock in the morning and go back at two or three and they'd be using the same stories all over again. Right. Just recycled. Right. Um, and the other thing that drives me crazy, I mean, I we watch David Muir at night. I don't mm -hmm. know if Nora O'Donnell is on your plate at home. Well, we, we watch, watch them David, all. We watch them all. I watch. We, we like David Muir. Um, but one of the other things that drives me crazy is they'll read a story that's 10 seconds long and then take a commercial break and read another story that's 10 seconds long. And then take another commercial break. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Walter Cronkite never did that to the best <laughs> of my knowledge. Yeah. It's um, changed a lot, hasn't it? It changed a lot. So I recommend if you've got streaming, I recommend NBC News Now, which is the 24 hour streaming service that that uh, that NBC offers. ABC has one and CBS has CBS N. Uh, so all three of the major commercial networks now offer a streaming uh, alternative if you don't want to watch the evening news. And it's very similar to what CNN was going to do with CNN Plus, remember? Um, yep. The now, which was pretty much streaming for about 
30 days before they pulled the plug on it, which is very unfortunate. I think the more content we have, the better. And yet, I say that with the caveat uh, about what I said a moment ago, that um, audiences have to be smart about where they're consuming, where, what they're using, where they're getting their news. You know, I mean, look, Fox News has been in the news a lot lately for uh, some real problems with its journalism. Uh, that's a cautionary tale for me. I, it's very concerning to me. If Fox knew what they knew in 2020 and they didn't report it, then um, that's very suspicious to me. If they knew that Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency and they didn't report it, I have concerns. Yeah, that's you could go in a whole direction there. As far as the uh... <laughs> well, but if we're having this conversation, if you know, if we're having this conversation at a journal in a journalism class, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's a very legitimate discussion because because I have to ask the question: Were the standards of journalism used in 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 the content that was? put out on the air. Again, it, this goes back to what I said to you before about a training ground. You know, when we all, when I started in this business, those standards were not frivolous. They were, we were serious about them. Um, it's how radio stations at the time had and kept their licenses to broadcast because they were serving the community with the truth, um, you know, with community service, which includes the news not fake news, the real news. So but you can see that these, I am, it sounds so charming to say it this way because I sound so old school, but all of these standards have to be applied today. And I, I'm happy to tell you with a daughter working at the Associated Press, those standards are very important. I mean, I just read her employee journal because she's new in the job. So I wanted to read it and she shared it with me. It was, it was so wonderful to read uh, how important journalistic standards are to a place like the Associated Press. So there you go. It still exists, Ken. It still exists. <laughs> Do people perform differently in front of a camera than they would if they were just talking to a newsman? Um, I don't know. I think the best, uh, you, are you talking about newsmakers or news anchors? Both, actually. You know, I think the camera and the microphone does change things for a lot of people. It makes them uncomfortable or it makes them um, a little bit leery about what they're saying and doing. Um, and, and that's probably why I said before that the people that I know in broadcasting who are successful, even to this day, have logged a lot of hours on air. And as a result, that's what makes them good and watchable and, lis and listenable if you will. I, I find a lot of the news today very depressing uh, with the school shootings and mm. problems with, with the police. Um, I wonder almost if news people are doing too good a job in covering some of these things. I don't and, agree. I don't agree, but because... Um, where would we be without it? I just have to ask that question. Where would we as a society be without great news stories about that reflect and show what, what's going on in our society? Um, I don't believe that you can be too informed. It's just, that's just me. But, you know, you're talking to a news junkie. Yeah. <laughs> My whole family, all three of us. You know, yeah, it's sort of I, what we, um, it's what we subscribe to because we believe that 
it, that that good journalism only makes society better. Yeah, we. I mean, we watch the news every night. We're not, and uh, but we turn on Channel Five at four or four thirty in the afternoon and keep it on right up till seven o'clock, and uh, you know, watch watch David Muir. Is there room for another news station in Boston? Well, um, that's such a great question. Are you talking about radio station? Yep. Another news station. Well, I don't know. Uh, it's a wonderful question. I was thrilled when GBH decided to do more talk and news um, because BUR was having success with it. Um, and I feel like that still to this day, 10 years later, that disruption in the market only served the audience, right? In, a, in a, Because it gave us more choice as listeners. So sure, why not? Um, I will tell you that I happened to just find out recently that the Boston Globe has decided its writers deserve to be on some form of television. And so in March, every night at 5 p.m. on the Globe website, if you're a subscriber, and also on New England Sports Network, you're gonna, you're gonna get to see a half an hour, half hour news program featuring Globe writers. And they'll do a little bit more digging and in-depth reporting on the day's news, on what's in the newspaper. So I guess I bring that up because we're all probably readers of the Boston Globe or have been over the years. Yep. Now yep. the Boston Globe has decided, you know what, we're not going to do radio, but we're going to do a form of television and we're going to offer it streaming to our viewers. So you can't, you won't be able to watch it on cable that I'm aware of. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but you can stream it. So, you know, it's just to me, the Globe is recognizing what the Associated Press is realizing that we need to serve our digital audience with our same journalistic standards, but in a new format. Do writers make good broadcasters? Yes. <laughs> All of the good broadcasters that I know are also strong writers and communicators. So yes, they do. Such as? Oh my gosh. Starting <laughs> with Ed Walsh, who's a great writer. Um, I mentioned him. Gary LaPierre is a perfect example. Oh. Diane Stern, wonderful writer and communicator. Yep. Um, Susan Warnick, fantastic, funny, bright, witty, but a great communicator after, you know, in, at the end of the day. Right. That's what makes a good broadcaster, I would say. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard, though, when these people leave, because I don't know sometimes if they're adequately replaced. I agree with you. Yeah. And and so to me, that's what I was referring to um, a while ago when we were talking about how, how air staffs have shrunk on radio and television. So there isn't a lot of training ground anymore. You know, I came from a smaller market to work in a big market like Boston, you know, on a big station like RKO. But I, I had had a number of other radio jobs prior to, to coming to Boston and working um, on the air. And that was all important. All of that was a great training ground. And I can say the same for most of my successful colleagues, that they all had the opportunity to work at smaller places first. I don't know that, that's, that those opportunities exist anymore. And that's unfortunate. When I, when I came to Boston, I was constantly told it's good to go to a broadcast school or setup <laughs> so that when you go to a radio station, an employer doesn't have to show you how to run a board right. or show you how to put stuff, if you'll pardon the expression, on a cartridge. 
Right. <laughs> I remember and, those days. Yeah. And, and it helped me a great deal because when I got to BZ, I knew how to run a board. Sure. And yep. queue up records. Same. Remember but I also, records? I also just <laughs> learned, you know, I, I know how to turn on a transmitter. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> well, I never had to do that, but um, I, I still think there's a place for broadcast schools. Um, although I, I, I knew a friend of mine in Rochester and he got into the business when he was 11 years old and, and never went to a broadcast school. Wow. So things he, are different. But um, he learned his, he learned the ropes, right? That's, that's he, really what it's about learning the ropes. He learned the ropes. Uh, he worked in, in Boston, as a matter of fact, and Philadelphia and, um, uh, obviously, in some cases, working in the smaller markets before you get to the big ones help. Oh, I didn't do much. that. Very much. I, so. I got out of I got out of college, and the first time I went on the air, I had to do calling all sports on a Saturday night because they couldn't find anybody else, and <laughs> and that was my first time on the air. You were thrown to the wolves. I was thrown to the wolves. Man, was I scared. But once I got on the air and, and started to get through it, I said, hey, I, I might live to the end of this broadcast. And well, and you have to agree because you've got a lot of experience now behind a microphone. It, if you have the gift of gab, Ken, which clearly you yep. and I do, oh, that yeah. helps too. No question about it. <laughs> um, do, you have, do you have any closing remarks or any advice you would like to give to uh, our listeners that are listening now and maybe even me? Yes. Um, have Make news literacy in your life a priority. You know, make sure you're getting your news from legitimate sources that actually, uh, you know, practice um, journalistic standards. That would be my first appeal. And my second appeal is if you want to get into broadcasting, you know, now's the time. All you have to do is get your foot in the door and then the rest is, you know, lots of things can happen, right? Look what happened to Ken. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, but is it is it easier now? I would think it would be harder to get into broadcasting. I'm I'm glad nobody's ever asked me because I know how radio stations are going, and right. and a lot of them are doing syndication, and and their excuse is why should we pay X amount of dollars to a talent when we can pay X amount of dollars to a producer to right. run a board during a national Rush Limbaugh or Bruce Williams or um, anybody else doing doing a, a radio yeah. broadcast. I think it is harder today because there are just fewer positions. I think that's that's the that's a fact. It's true. But I think if it's you have the passion, sad. if you have the passion for it, you should pursue it. Well, listen, I I have totally. I knew when I heard. Oh, tell the audience you you're, you have a connection with Verizon. Yes, I do. So besides working in radio, when I left RKO uh, to be a stay-at-home mom with our daughter, I started doing voiceover work on, you know, set up a home studio. It was very easy because the digital age was coming, coming alive. And uh, one of the clients that I had was a company that was selling a voicemail package to Verizon, which at the time was a small regional cellular phone company about 25 years ago. So, you know, real, realize, try to picture in your mind, this was not a huge national 
cell phone company that it is now providing national service. It was local. Uh, and they hired me to record their voicemail package. Please enter your password, then press pound, uh, all of that. And I laid it all on top of their computer program, spent several hours in studio recording it for them. And the rest is history. They ended up using the package. And as they grew and grew exponentially to 80 million customers, the Verizon voicemail lady was, <laughs> was used and is still used to this day. And probably what what really, what's funny to me is that all these years later, if you dial star eight, six on any Verizon phone, phone, you're going to hear me, but it kind I've kind of gone away because of smartphones and visual voicemail, right? And, you know, don't forget now, if you have a smartphone, you can read your voicemails because you can get, um, you can get the text of your voicemails. So right. a lot of people are not engaging with the Verizon lady that they, like they were maybe 20 years ago, but. Yeah, she's still around. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, when I heard your name, I, I knew you would be a great interview and a great oh, source of entertainment. And you have far exceeded that thought. And it was I, fun I, talking. It was fun talking about the old days. I, I can't thank you enough for doing that. I, those were a great time. And as they, I, I don't think it'll ever be again. But, I agree. Um, I agree. Glory days for sure. Well, thank you I, so much, Ken. It was a pleasure. It was, oh, it was an honor for me to be able to speak to you. I hope that uh, we cross paths at the next uh, Mass Broadcasters Hall of Fame luncheon. I do too. Uh, and uh, it'll be great to finally meet a lady that I, I used to listen to. I always so get a kick out of that. I do too. That's fun. So well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and uh, continue good luck. And if there's ever anything I can do from, from here or with your classes, be sure and be sure and give me a call and let me know because I'd be Absolutely. very happy to. Absolutely. I'd be very happy to. And that will do it for another edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.